0: the Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today, I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Kelly Saldana and Eric Redding. Kelly is App's Vice President of System Strengthening and Resilience. She came to us earlier this year from USAID, where she was Director of the agency's Office of Health Systems. There, she incorporated concepts of resilience into the agency's understanding of what makes systems strong. Eric is App's first Chief Climate Officer, a role he took on this summer after leading our work with USAID, which included extensive contracts addressing health, agriculture, energy, and, of course, resilience. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. At least 3.3 billion people are considered to be highly vulnerable to climate change, and, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, people are 15 times more likely to die from extreme weather than in years past. But there are less obvious threats, which fall into what we might think of as more traditional health sector concerns. For example, between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea, and heat stress, according to the World Health Organization. So it's not surprising that USAID is now calling itself a climate agency. But if we're finally officially recognizing the intersect between climate, health, and resilience, how do we manage it? How do we find the funding we need? How do we measure the progress we're making? And how do we start implementing solutions? Eric, as I just mentioned, you recently took on a new role here at Aft. You're our first chief climate officer, and you're coming from the position as head of our USAID portfolio. What led you to embrace the new CCO role?
1: Well, after uh, working for decades in global development and in various areas from urban development to water and energy and agriculture, natural resources, I really saw climate um, crossing into everything that we worked in in global development. And I saw that the challenges that we're seeing from the changes in climate are affecting all of those and the solutions that we need to adopt are really found in each of those areas. So it made me realize I have something that I can really contribute to how do we take on these challenges of of making our systems more resilient to climate change, and how do we help make adaptations of, of behaviors and systems um, that mitigate the climate change challenge.
0: Obviously, we're still doing a lot of work with USAID, and so, Kelly, I'm going to ask you, now that it's a climate agency, uh, but without specific climate funding, um, and the bureaus aren't necessarily synchronized in their approach. Um, You faced similar challenges when you were there. You were leading health system strengthening as a cross-cutting platform to achieve sustainable health outcomes. What are some lessons and solutions you see for climate integration as you're trying to solve for those same problems, maybe, or similar problems?
2: Sure. I think um, one of the things we found working in health systems is that um, each of the individual programs within the global health sector um, worked on strengthening health systems as directly related to those programs. But what we were trying to do was to strengthen health systems in a cross-cutting and comprehensive way. And that really required us to um, make it clear that although the impacts weren't direct, that they were important because there's real opportunity costs to direct programming if you're not focusing on health systems. So I think there's direct linkages to climate um, related to that. Um, based on some of the statistics you stated at the beginning, but clearly we've seen that um, in the event of a natural disaster, people lose access to health services. And so how do we ensure continuity of services so we don't see backsliding on issues? And that's something that has to happen before the disaster occurs. And so there's themes of these types of adaptations that we can build into systems um, early so that they're um, available and. Able to withstand uh, different types of climate stressors.
0: So this isn't even necessarily new work for us, right? For example, in Mozambique, we were helping people um, get a hold of their antiretroviral therapies um, amidst a disaster where supplies were difficult to get a hold of. But we're not necessarily calling this climate work, right? So. Um, How do we highlight those linkages uh, topically and then help coordinate that work while addressing all aspects? So meaning not just the health aspect, but the climate and resilience aspects.
2: I think two things. One. What we tried to do is enable multi-month dispensing of ARVs. So rather than have to pick up your ARVs uh, every month, that clients could go and pick up a three or six month supply. But what you don't want to do is do that for ARVs and then recreate that for family planning commodities and then recreate it for something else. You want to make sure that the system itself has policies that enable and sort of have thought that through at the outset. Um, But then specifically how we adapt for climate, USAID um, is requiring climate risk mitigation plans in all of its designs. And a lot of that is really thinking through from the USAID perspective, what are the risks, the climate related risks to the development activity that USAID is designing and making sure that USAID is building into its contracts and grants, um, the ability for implementers like Apt to um, know what to expect and be able to quickly adapt and adjust programs. And I think it's a lot of that same kind of thinking that USAID is doing specifically for the programs it funds that we wanna make sure the countries that we work with are also doing for the ongoing programs that implementers like APT are providing technical assistance for. So it's not just how do you maintain the continuity of APP's programs, but how do you um, work with countries so that they're maintaining continuity of all of their programs across the board, but using a lot of the same principles.
1: And it's important to remember that climate exacerbates pre-existing vulnerabilities. So when you have uh, poverty or um, gender that are causing vulnerability to start with, um, changes in climate and the, the stresses and shocks that come from changes in climate um, make those vulnerabilities even worse. It also intersects with a lot of other sectors. Obviously, um, climate dramatically impacts agriculture, and changes in climate can you know, very rapidly affect nutrition and incomes from agriculture. Um, it affects uh, malaria, for example, and APT does a lot of work in pre- preventing malaria vectors around the world. And those malaria seasons are extended as the climate gets warmer and the um, the mosquitoes are able to thrive in the warmer climate.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you can't just have and build systems resilience without also creating community and individual resilience. And I think a lot of times we talk about layering and sequencing different kinds of activities on top of one another in order to really build that overall resilience. So if you think of um, the health system itself, it's dependent on health workers. And if those workers cannot get to the facility because of a disaster or because of their own familial situation, then the health system is not going to be able to function as well um, without health workers. And then there's other, um, as Eric was mentioning, in the event of a disaster, there's oftentimes increases in gender-based violence and and other actions that really the community itself needs to have plans and and abilities to, to deal with from a resilience perspective, which feeds into the functioning of the systems themselves. Eric,
0: you want to talk a little bit about how we're already, you know, sort of working with um, partners on the ground, and I'm thinking like our electrification work, for example, which also has um, health implications, and you know, and I how that might dovetail with what Kelly's talking about, or be an exemplar
1: of what Kelly's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're doing, we're just beginning some really interesting work right now that is working on the electrification of health facilities throughout Africa. Ten thousand health facilities that are either unpowered or underpowered today. And that not only helps to improve the the quality of care that can be brought um, with electricity coming into those settings, but also helps to make those um, communities more resilient um, as those uh, health facilities have their own independent sources of power. So um, as you see um, natural disaster, as you see other things happening, you've got a much, much more resilient um, energy system in place. And as we know, in the in the case of disaster, um, losing your energy grid is a, a real consequence that happens very frequently. Um, having health facilities that have independent power in that way through solar electrification um, is a tremendously huge benefit. And even within the United States, we've seen where that, um, that, that independent power of health facilities um, can really help when the grid is stressed in the case of, uh, for example, um, high heat events.
0: And you're referring to, you know, tapping into that into those health facilities as a resource for the community?
1: Exactly. Yeah. For example, in California recently, when um, when the, the grid was really overstressed, the fact that there was backup power generation in um, hospitals throughout the, the state really allowed more power to be brought online. What would have normally been backup power um, could be used for uh, primary power for that health facility, allowing other power to be used for the grid um, that allowed... You know, people to uh, survive in that in that extreme heat event. And in that particular case, um, you know, because of the extreme heat, one of the challenges was keeping people from getting heat stroke and out of the emergency rooms. So these things really interrelate with each other. And, you know, these are problems that we think about today in the United States, for example, But um, as climate change has more and more impact around the world, um, that resilience of the grid is certainly going to be an issue in Africa and throughout developing countries.
2: And I think that's a, a really good example of, of something that's um, both helping us to adapt and prepare for climate emergencies, but is also just helping the basic delivery of health services on an everyday basis. And so I think, especially at the primary care level, there's um, a lot of services that are provided through outreach and community workers and, and that sort of thing that don't necessarily require electricity to function. But um, when a woman's having a baby in the middle of the night, you know, you want to have a light to be able to deliver that baby at the nearest health facility. And so it really does help um, the programs that USAID is implementing in the health sector today, while also helping to prepare for um, potential climate emergencies in the future.
1: Exactly. And it's much, much better than the alternative, for example, of having diesel generation or propane lamps or other things that are causing negative consequences for the environment while while helping to provide that, uh, that health service in the middle of the night.
0: We have that stat about where if you have consistent refrigeration, the amount of health issues you can treat re- increase from six to fourteen or even twenty. Um, so clearly, there's a lot of benefit there. So understanding there's this intersection with with resilience. Uh, moving forward, how how can climate pra- practically, you know, practically speaking, be part of it? Right, like you know, USAID is a climate agency now, but Funding-wise, what does that mean? What are some strategies we can have moving forward to sort of really ensure that we're advancing an integrated goal of resilience for health and for climate?
2: So specifically, there's increasing recognition within the health systems community that um, strong health systems have to be resilient. Um, So they have to both be able to take care of core functions on a regular basis, but also able to do so in the face of different kinds of shocks and stressors, which can be climate, but could also be infectious diseases, outbreaks, or um, any other sort of disruptions that happen on a regular basis. And there is an opportunity um, in the way that Congress appropriates legislation for health programs, which has tended to be very program specific. but starting with um, this year, they're actually asking USAID to use 10% of the funding across each of those elements and and use them for cross-cutting health systems activities. And so some of the things that um, USAID could do in that cross-cutting way that would um, enable health systems to be more resilient is to make sure the policies are in place to ensure continuity of services like um, like the, um, being able to dispense uh, multi-month availability, having telework options available, um, making sure that there's agreements between public sector and private sector to be able to share resources if, if one or the other is unable to continue to provide resources, um, loosening up some of the public financial management systems so that funding can also be more flexibly moved from one area to the other in the event of an emergency, and then having um, robust core coordination committees that I think involve the community as well as the health sector and other relevant government agencies that really are stood up and able to respond in, in the event of an emergency, to name a couple of examples.
1: Yeah, I, I would add as well, there have been regulations in place for a long time that um, climate risk management um, is something that needs to be looked at in the context of development program. But historically, we've tended to look at that as a Kind of a negative that we have to make sure that climate's not going to wipe away this investment that we've made. I think in the world that we're in today, we have a real opportunity to think of that as a positive and really lean into that climate risk assessment and say, okay, we understand that this is how this system is going to be stressed by climate. And then as we make an investment to that system, how can we make that system more resilient to shocks? Those shocks are climate shocks, those shocks are social shocks, uh, political shocks, whatever else they might be, but investing in that that system resilience that we can identify through that climate risk assessment process is really valuable. And APT has, has supported the agency for quite some time um, in working on that climate risk assessment work. I think leaning into that, and really making it part of the design rather than something that we're doing just to satisfy a regulatory requirement um, is really a way that we can use existing streams of investment that we're already making whether it's in um, family planning and maternal health, for example, where APP did some work in the Philippines to look at the disruptions to family planning um, from um, heat stresses and climate change and uh, other climate disasters, um, to understand how you can build a system that is more resilient to those shocks.
2: Yeah, and I think. That APT example is really good because it wasn't just looking at um, the climate's impact on APT's program, but because APT's program was working directly with the government, APT's program really was working hand in glove with the government program. And to mitigate climate, it wasn't enough that APT had flexibility in its planning, but really trying to infuse those into local governments in the Philippines so that now the Filipino health system itself has contingency plans and and climate risk mitigation plans that that local health uh, systems are able to do. Exactly.
0: Well, this is a rare occurrence. We're talking about, you know, apocalyptic climate change. We have a happy ending. Maybe that's a good place to stop. Thank you both for joining me. Sure. Thank you, Eric. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect.